Well, church, as we, as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, I want to address a, just one quick thing here. Uh, if, uh, if your week has been anything like mine, uh, your news feed has been filled with, uh, uh, with news articles and all sorts of different uh, protesting and things that have gone out uh, this week because of the leaked majority opinion uh, regarding Roe versus Wade. And so I want to address this morning very quickly here as we dive into even our, our text, but I thought it was important as we as a church address, how do we engage this as Christians? What is going on and what does the Scripture say? Now, I've made it really clear uh, over the past several years as I've stood up here uh, that I, I believe that abortion is wrong, that abortion is evil, uh, that abortion is, is, is wicked. And so with this news and what is uh, looking as though it, it, there's a, a chance for Roe versus Wade, this, uh, uh, this Supreme Court case from 1973, and then Planned, Ver- Planned Parenthood versus Casey back in 1992, which forms a lot of the framework for what we have as our modern-day structure for abortion in America that's looking as if it will be reversed and overturned. I am very, uh, very pleased by that. But yet we need to recognize as well that, that there's much work to be done and that this doesn't just completely eradicate uh, the wickedness of what abortion has wreaked on our country for the past 50 years. So we've made it clear, we've made it clear that, that abortion is wrong, abortion is evil. And so as Christians, we should celebrate, but at the same time, we want to be, be Bible people. We want to look at this through the lens of what Scripture says, what Scripture teaches. We don't want to react emotionally. We want to react from where our foundation is found and what truth is. As, re, as found in God's Word. And so let me eat this really quickly this morning. I want to, I'm not, this isn't my sermon. All right, so, so, but I wanted to address this because I felt like this is important. So I'm going to hit this really quickly here. So if you want to write down some of these, these passages of Scripture to study, to meditate, to dwell on, because uh, I, I'm going to assume the majority of people in this room here this morning, or you're, if you're listening online, uh, land where I land and believe I, what you believe Scripture uh, teaches regarding abortion, but there may be some here that are like, man, I, I disagree with that, or struggling with this, or don't know what Scripture teaches. And so I want to really encourage us that we need to be people of the Word. And, and so let me give you a few passages for you to jot down, to think through, because that's where we go to first. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. We believe that that human beings are made in the image of God, and therefore, because we carry the image of God, that, that every human being, from the moment of conception to the end of their life on this earth, carries intrinsic value and worth. And so Genesis 1, 27. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together, in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Isaiah 1.17 speaks of the, the heartbeat of God and the heartbeat of what should be upon those who follow him. Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 1, says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So we as the church, we don't, we don't disengage from this. We do engage, but we are called by God to learn to do good, to seek justice, correct oppression, to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, to speak for those who are vulnerable. There's no, no person more vulnerable than an unborn child. Micah 6, verses 6 to 8, With what shall I come before the Lord? I bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the 
Lord, be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We are called to do justice, to do that which is right, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the oppressed, to care for the abused, to do so and to love kindness, to walk in humility. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for those in positions of authority. Pray for our president. Pray for our vice president. Pray for Congress, for Senate, for our governors. Pray for the Supreme Court justices. We pray for those in those positions that God has placed that they would make decisions that would, that would create a culture of life. So 1 Timothy 2, another passage, Ephesians 6, verse 12, we need to remember what our battle's against. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Remember who our enemy is. Right? Abortion is a supreme evil because if we are made as image bearers of God, then the great enemy of God, Satan himself, is going to do anything he can to wreak havoc, to assault the face of God, the very image of God. And that is what abortion does. But So remember where our true enemy is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Matthew 5, verses 9 through 11, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, those, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I'm well aware that the, the majority opinion in our country is, is for abortion rights, but I don't care. <laughs> we should not care what the majority of, of human opinion is. If right is right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's evil. So, so listen, we as we engage a culture... We are going to be oppressed. We are going to be persecuted. We will be misunderstood. Be peacemakers. Seek to be peacemakers. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, meaning those who don't agree with you, those who are not part of the covenant family of faith. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Let me say that again. Let your speech always be gracious. There is no caveat there for people that you don't agree with. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4. Last one I'll give you. Philippians 2, 5-8. through Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I reference that passage for one main, main reason. The, the, primary, the primary argument for those who advocate for abortion is, is, is bodily autonomy, self-autonomy, that I can do what I want to do because it's my body. 
that no one has a right to say what I can do, that I don't need to put anyone else ahead of myself, that I am king of my universe. It's the idolatry of self. This may be the strongest thing I say this morning, but that is demonic. That language is demonic. That language, now please hear me, I'm not calling them demonic. I'm calling the language demonic. That language is from the pit of hell. That I come first, that no one else comes first. That I can make my decision, I can do what I want. As as Christians, what did we just read? What did Christ do? He he laid aside his, his glory. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing. Took on the form of a servant. Was born in the likeness of men. Why? For the needs of humanity, for the good of others, to redeem humanity, to to be that bridge between humanity and deity. We'll talk about that today from Mark 9. And so as Christians, what's Paul say? Model that. Be that counterculture in the world today, that we put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it it represents and it models and reflects the beauty of Christ and what he has done. So those are scriptures. We go to scripture first. Study God's word, know it, drink it in, meditate upon it. Let me give you then, though, secondly, a couple books or a few books to read. Uh, this book, Counterculture, a few books in here. Counterculture by David Platt. This is in our bookstore. You can check it out. Uh, read through that book. Uh, uh, Culture Making by Andy Crouch is another great book to read. Culture Making by Andy Crouch. Uh, I, I've got a book in my office. It's a, it's a textbook, but really helpful. It's called Ethics for a Brave New World by John and Paul Feinberg. Great book to read. Good section on there on abortion and just educating, knowing what, what this is. Uh, Onward by Russell Moore. It's in our bookstore as well. You can check that out. And then I just came across, Pastor Dan actually put this on my desk a few days ago, The Case for Life by, uh, by Scott Klusendorf. So I've been skimming over it the past few days. Few great resources to check out just to, to learn how do we engage our culture in a Christ-like way. Lastly, how do we pray as we go to the Lord in prayer? How do we pray? Um, first thing here is we want to praise God for this, this moment, right? We want to praise God for what, what seems to be taking place. We want to celebrate, but at the same time, at the same time, we want to we want to lament. We want to lament. See, an argument that's been, that I've been hearing over the past, past week or so is that this is the undoing of 50 years of precedent. I think as a church, we should mourn that that's been precedent for 50 years. That we should lament the loss of so many children who have had their lives destroyed. And that we should lament for, for mothers who have been preyed upon by the abortion industry. See, we care. We care for the entire life. From the moment of conception all the way to at the end of life, we pray and we care for those because all life is valuable, all life is sacred. And so we need to lament the loss and we need to lament so many mothers who have been preyed upon by the, the abortion industry and care for them. I love John's prayer uh, earlier this, this morning, praying for those who have been affected by abortion. If you're, if you're one of those here this morning, one of those women, one of those mothers who have been affected by that, this is a safe place for you. This is a safe place for you because this is a gospel community that every single person around you is someone who says, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I need Christ, that he's enough. So this is a safe place for you. So do not become overcome with guilt, but, but find pardon in the cross of Christ. A way to pray thirdly, pray for each justice, pray for their safety, pray for this court majority to hold firm for life, 
pray for all of them collectively to have the, the fortitude and strength to withstand the, the, the torrent of criticism that is coming their way and has come their way. Lastly, ask God to raise up a, the next generation of pro-life leaders who will serve in their communities, who will serve in their churches to meet the needs of the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable, and, and to do so in a Christ-like way, building a culture of life wherever they live. So I'm so thankful that we as a church partner with such ministries such as Pregnancy Resource Center. We're on the front lines. We're serving mothers in crisis. So grateful for them. Pray for them. Get involved. I'm so grateful that we partner with a ministry underneath the umbrella of PRC called Deeper Still that, that ministers to, to, to women, to mothers who have had an abortion. It helps them find the grace that comes through Christ, that, that his grace is enough that's been lavished upon them. I'm thankful for ministries like Deeper Still. I'm thankful for just recently as a church, us, us getting involved and in, in partnering with the Forgotten Initiative, a ministry that's seeking to be on the front lines for foster care, to care for uh, families in crisis, children in crisis right now who need a safe home to be in. And so these are ministries to be a part of. These are ministries to pray for, to, to serve. And now as, as the culture shifts and as things come to the forefront, we as the church need to not sit idly by and watch and criticize or post random comments on social media. We need to get engaged and involved. We need to be what the church is called to be. And so with that being said, let me pray for us this morning, especially as we dive into Mark 9 and this glorious story of the transfiguration of Christ. See, in the midst of a culture that is oppressive and anti-Christ, the transfiguration is a beautiful story to behold this morning because it causes us to look to the hope of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. So pray with me as we dive into our text this morning. Father, we come to you. We're so grateful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful that you are a God of life. We're thankful that, that, that you you spoke life into existence and that, that through, through your creative faculties, through your uh, goodness and grandeur and greatness and majesty, that you, you've created image bearers who reflect who you are. And so, God, we know, though, since Genesis 3, that, that the image bearer of, of who you are in humanity has been under attack, has been under assault through the curse of sin. And so, God, we praise you and thank you that, that the cross of Christ is sufficient. We praise and thank you that, that Jesus came to redeem and to, to build that, that, that bridge, be that bridge back to God the Father, to restore humanity back to how it's meant to be. But in that, that waiting here until you come and return and restore all things, we are in the battle. We are in the thick of it. And so, God, I pray that we would never be so disillusioned to think that, that Christianity is all about comfort and prosperity that that's, that is a bunch of garbage, that is anti-biblical, that you've called on us to come and die. You've called on us to take up our cross daily and follow you. You've called us to be a people of, of truth and truth found in not our opinions, but truth found in your word. And so, God, as we proclaim this, this message of truth, may we do so, one, with humility, may we do so with grace and kindness and mercy, but still recognizing and understanding that, that that language, that truth is going to bring back upon us uh, oppression and persecution. And so, God, may we still stand because you are enough. And if it's right, if it's, it's right. And so help us. Give the church. May the, may the church in this season rise up and be what the church is actually called to be. So, God, help us. We pray for, we pray for uh, what is happening in our country. God, we pray that, that what seems to be coming would take place, that there would be this reversal 
this, this strike down of this, of this, this court, this, this case that has wreaked havoc upon your image for over 50 years here. God, we pray for our president, we pray for our vice president, we pray for Congress, we pray for our Senate, we pray for the Supreme Court justices who are making this decision. We pray for our governor, we pray for uh, our state Congress as well, as so much is going to change now within even each individual state. And so God, may the church be a church of, of, of hope. May we be a countercultural people. May we, may we continue to love and support and care for those on the front lines at Pregnancy Resource Center and deeper still and forgotten initiative, those who are seeking to care for, for all of life from the moment of conception all the way to end of life. God, may that be what the church is about. So God, help us in the midst of knowing the fire is coming, the fire is upon us. May we then also from Mark 9 this morning look to the great hope that we have in a, in a glorious King who reigns over all. So suffering now, yes, but glory is coming. So may that be our hope. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's dig in. All right, sermon number two. All right. Uh, now, as we jump into Mark 9, looks can, be, looks can be deceiving, can they not? We probably heard this, maybe this old adage. Uh, this old adage that says, don't judge a book by its cover. Now, more, no more is this, this found to be true than in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity. He, he made himself nothing, as I just read in Philippians 2. He took on the form of a servant. Jesus is the eternal word, became flesh. He is the, he is, is the one who has dwelt among us in bodily form, as the Gospel of John would say. The Apostle Paul says to the Colossian church that, that in Jesus was, was the fullness of deity in bodily form, meaning that, that Jesus is both fully God, but at the same time, he is fully man. And it was the prophet Isaiah who centuries before the arrival of Jesus spoke into Jesus' humanity and said that, that this suffering servant had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, that he was a man of sorrows. He was, he was one whom men hid their faces. But things are not always as they seem, and the transfiguration of Jesus is the confirmation and the affirmation of his deity, of his kingship of his reign and of his rule and authority over all creation. So though this moment in Mark 9 is not, not his, his coronation as king, that will come with his death and with his resurrection and ascension to the throne. But this transfiguration is a preview of sorts. It's a glimpse of his glory and the glory that is to come. And so again, remember through the Gospel of Mark, for the last eight chapters, Mark has sought to answer really one question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Last week we saw the Apostle Peter answer that question correctly. You are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah. You're the promised one of God. You're the King. And in Jesus we have found the one whom our hearts long for. But, but Jesus, as, as the disciples struggled with what Jesus is teaching from this point forward, Jesus wasn't the King that Israel was expecting. A, a King is one, who, is, is one who commands those underneath him, not a King who serves a king is one who is accepted by the people, not rejected. A king is one who reigns from a throne, not a cross. See, Jesus was not the, the king Israel expected, but he was everything they needed. Though, though Peter rightly confessed Jesus as the Messiah, remember from last week, as soon as, as Jesus began to teach and, and talk about his suffering, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. Right? In Peter's mind, that's not kingly language. A king doesn't suffer. A king reigns. 
He reigns victoriously over his enemies. And so what the disciples didn't understand yet was that Jesus' coronation as king would come through the cross. Yes, there is coming a time when Jesus will trample over his enemies, that he will reign forever over death, but, but that comes through his death. That comes through his suffering. And that ultimately then comes from his resurrection. And a call then to those who would, who would follow Jesus then is a call to radical self-denial. In fact, a call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer so that through our suffering, we would see and behold the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus above all things. But we, just like Peter, we don't like to suffer. We don't in our flesh want to take up our cross daily. We don't want to die to ourselves. That, that, that language, that teaching, that doesn't come naturally to us. We're, we're much, we're, we'd much rather escape suffering than endure it. We'd much rather escape hardship and just reap the benefits of, of living under the reign of a, of a king. But what's Jesus teach? He teaches that the path to glory, the path to glory is a path that's marked with suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this king. So we live with this hope. We live with the hope, though, that there's coming a day when all that is wrong in the world and within ourselves will come undone. That the curse will be reversed, that death will be no more, and that, and that there's coming a day when disciples of Jesus will live under the good and forever reign and rule of King Jesus. That is our future glory. That is our hope. But until that day, disciples walked the path of Jesus, and his was a path filled with suffering all the way to the cross. And so the transfiguration comes right after this, this tense conversation between Jesus and his disciples that, that Dan talked about last week. After calling them to take up their cross and follow him. After calling them to, to lose their lives so they might find life. It's six days, about a week after this conversation, that Jesus is transfigured before three of them, Peter, James, and John. He's changed is what transfiguration means. And he's briefly seen in this moment in all of his glory. And why? To encourage them, follow me, follow me. And he's giving them this glimpse of the glory which is to come. See, though the call to discipleship is a call to radical self-denial, the transfiguration of Jesus is a glimpse of the future glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Another way I could say that, that sentence there, is that yes, suffering is sure to come for those who belong to Jesus, but take heart. We follow and belong to a glorious King. The transfiguration of Jesus, though, though remarkable and mind-blowing, is, 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 is in some ways incredibly simple in what it's seeking to reveal. It's about hope. It's about a future glory that's ours through Christ the King. The transfiguration is about encouraging the disciples to continue on through radical self-denial and through cross-bearing because they serve and follow a glorious King. It's about revealing Jesus as that glorious King of Kings. So look with me again as we journey through this, this narrative, this story here starting in verse, verse 2. Again, reminding us of this story. After six days, after six days from this tense conversation, with his disciples, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud that this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, centuries before this moment on this mountain with Jesus and these three disciples, centuries before this moment took place, God revealed his power and glory on another mountain with a man named Moses. The same Moses we actually read here who is speaking with Jesus as Jesus is transfigured. And so here's what's taking place in the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 24. It says that then Moses went up on the mountain, and the the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. We see in this Exodus story that God spoke to Moses on the mountain out of the cloud. In verse 16, it says, On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. In chapter 25, verse 1, we, we start seeing this again. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. A few chapters later, Moses is on the mountain and, and begs to see God's glory. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Meaning Moses was saying, Show me your infinite greatness, your beauty, your splendor. Let me gaze upon your holiness. And God responds to Moses' request. And he says, And I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place uh, by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back my face you shall not shall not be seen see Moses was not allowed to look directly upon the glory of God for that would have killed him yet just the nearness of God's presence caused, caused Moses's face to shine so brightly that when he came down from the mountain a veil had to be put over it we read of that in Exodus 34 that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now here we are, Mark 9, centuries later, on the top of another mountain, hearing God speak, seeing God's glory. Moses is present yet again. And so is this Mount Sinai again? Well, no, it's not. It's greater. And what's the difference? The difference is whereas Moses merely reflected the glory of God, much like the moon will reflect the light of the sun, Jesus here on this mount is, is producing the glory of God. So the first thing we, we take note of as, and that we're taught through this, this transfiguration narrative is that Jesus is the object of our worship. He's the source of all true worship. Notice, notice what Mark says in verse 3. He says his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And what's he say? As no one on earth could bleach them. So what's Mark saying here? He's saying his glory is a heavenly glory. It's not an earthly glory. There's nothing on earth that could have produced the radiance of of what Jesus was producing in that moment. Why is that? Well, the author of Hebrews would say that he is, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus is the exact imprint of the eternal God. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. This means, as others have said, that, that Jesus is not just a teacher to be followed. 
He's the one true God to be worshipped and adored. That our lives are to be centered around Him and His glory. He's the object of our worship. Jeremy Treat in his book, The Crucified King, says that we may claim Jesus as king, but then draw clear lines around his jurisdiction. I give my life, at least the spiritual parts, to Jesus. Jesus is king, but only of my Sunday mornings. And when I pray or read my Bible, we claim Christ as king, but we treat him like an accessory. Here's the truth. When we don't give everything over to Jesus, we're still the one who's in control. We act as our own king and then try to use Jesus to accomplish our goals. There's much in the world that seeks to distract us or to draw our affections away from Jesus to the the created things of this world. But here we have Jesus in glory and splendor, transfigured, who's changed in front of them. And in that moment, these three disciples are coming face to face with the true object of their worship, the true source of their worship. That there is nothing in this moment that's more glorious, that's more beautiful, that's more mesmerizing, that's more attractive than the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Think of the song that we sing here so often, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and what's the result of that? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. He's revealing His worthiness for our radical self-denial and cross-bearing way of life. Why can we joyfully take up our cross and follow Him? Because He is worthy of it. The second thing we learn from the transfiguration is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. Every detail in this narrative is important. There's a reason why both Moses and Elijah are present here with Jesus. Both Moses and Elijah represent the law of the prophets. What comprises our Old Testament? Moses is the author of the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Elijah represents the prophetic voices, those voices who, who, who by uh, God uh, spoke for God to God's people of God's judgment, coming redemption through a promised Messiah. The prophets spoke of a coming Redeemer. Both Moses and Elijah spoke with God on a mountain when they lived. Moses, as we just saw on Mount Sinai and Elijah and at Mount Horeb in King, 1 Kings chapter 19, both Moses and Elijah were shown God's glory. Together, they represent the wholeness of, of the Old Testament, which pointed to a coming Redeemer. And so what Peter had just confessed nearly a week earlier, that Jesus was the Christ, was in this moment being affirmed in this grand representation of the law and the prophets together. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. That He is the great Deliverer. That He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That He is the eternal King who will sit upon the throne forever. That Jesus is the sum total of everything that the law and the prophets pointed to. If there was any doubt in their minds as to who Jesus truly was, it would have been cleared up in this moment as they see the glory of Christ revealed before them and affirmed by Moses and Elijah. Thirdly, we see from this transfiguration story that Jesus is the final tabernacle. He's the final tabernacle. Can you imagine the conversation that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were having? Uh, Luke's gospel, in, in his telling of this, this story as well, tells, him, tells us that they were speaking of Jesus' impending death. Can you imagine just the theological richness of that conversation? If I could ever go back in time, it might be to this moment. Not to, not to say anything, but to just sit and listen to their conversation. And God loved Peter. 
<laughs> he has to say something. He's got to say something. He couldn't just sit there and listen and learn. He's got to like, I got to say something here. And so, so what's he say? He says, let's, Jesus, let's make three tents. One for you, Moses, Elijah. So, so what's that about? What's, what's Peter saying in that moment? Well, to understand this, we actually need to go back to, to Exodus again. See, when God's presence came down on, on Mount Sinai in a cloud, it was, it, it was the glory of God, the holiness of God. The Israelites, seeing this, they're terrified to come near. They're like, we are not going near that mountain. We're not going up that mountain. Now, only Moses could, be, could draw near after God called him to. And even he, as we read in Exodus 33, couldn't look directly upon God's glory and live. And so what's, what's, that, what's that revealing? It's revealing God's holiness and man's depravity. That there's this infinite gap between humanity and deity. That, so when humanity comes into the raw presence of, of God's deity, of his holiness, they crumble. The prophet Isaiah, he's given a, a vision of the throne room of God. And look at his response. It says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Even, even the Apostle John, who walked on this earth with, with, with Jesus, when he encounters the risen and reigning Jesus in all of his glory toward the end of his life, as he's exiled on the island of Patmos, when Jesus calls him and says, okay, write these words. This is how we get the book of Revelation. When Jesus approaches him, we see in Revelation 1.17, John say, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There's an infinite gap between deity and humanity. When Moses came down from the mountain in the book of Exodus, they, they then erected a tent, or a word we might be more familiar with in Scripture is a tabernacle. A tabernacle where God's presence could reside. That within this tabernacle, that there was this inner room called the Holy of Holies, the holy place. And it was there in that inner room where God's glory, his presence would reside. And, and only once a year could a high priest enter into that room. And only they could enter that room after a lot of ritualistic cleansing to make atonement then as they entered that room for the sins of the people. That no one else could ever come near the holy of holies, that holy place, because there's a chasm between God and man. The tabernacle and high priest was all Peter knew as a way to draw near to God's glory. It's all he knew. And so what's verse 6 say? He, it says they were terrified. Well, yeah, they're terrified. They're coming face to face with, with the glory of God. God told Moses, nobody can see my face. Come face to face with my glory and live. They're scared for their lives in this moment. And so Peter here is trying to create a way for them to ritualistically or religiously draw near to this moment without being destroyed. And what happens next in this, in, this, in this account here? It says that now a cloud overshadowed them. Well, listen, if they were terrified before, they're about to pass out now. The, 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 they more than likely thought this is the end. This is it. Like we can't, we can't be in this moment. They know Exodus. They know God's glory resided in a cloud that overshadowed Mount Sinai. They know nobody can be in the presence of a holy God and live. And yet they hear the voice of God speak to them from the cloud in verse 7, and they don't die. And Mark says that immediately that, that everything was gone, and the only one standing there was Jesus. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. It's only Jesus. Well, this is revealing 
that through Jesus, there is no longer a need for tabernacles. There's no longer a need for rituals or high priests or the blood of goats and lambs to come into the presence of God. Mark's showing us Jesus is the final tabernacle. He's the great high priest. That he's the perfect sacrificial lamb who will pay for the sins of humanity. Listen to Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have, been, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What was Peter trying to do? Create a tent. Create a tabernacle. What's Christ say? That's done. I'm the more perfect tent, the more perfect tabernacle. What's Hebrews say? Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, that holy of holies, where God's glory resided. He entered that holy of holies not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus is telling these three disciples that, that you, didn't, you didn't die just now because I'm here. Jesus is the bridge between deity and humanity. That we today, maybe in our modern minds, may not fully understand tabernacles and high priests and sacrifices, but we do in our modern mind understand the nature of religion and what it teaches. Re- religion teaches what we must do what we must create to earn favor with God. And Jesus here is revealing that, no, he's the only way. The law will not make you right with God. It only reveals our inability and weakness. What we need is faith in Jesus alone. Remember, again, what Jesus is calling us to that we saw in Mark 8, radical self-denial and cross-bearing way of life. And so the transfiguration reveals here that he's enough. He's sufficient. Fourthly, the transfiguration reveals that Jesus' his transfiguration is not made clear without the resurrection. His transfiguration will not be made perfectly clear until the resurrection. This is what we see in the remaining few verses of our passage this morning. So look at verses 9 through 13. It says, that As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So, so here's what's going on. They're coming down from this, this, this euphoric experience with Jesus, down the mountain, and they're just talking about it. And Jesus looks at these three and says, don't tell anyone what you just witnessed until after I rise from the dead. Now, why does he say that? He says it because this transfiguration that they had just witnessed uh, was, was a glimpse of his glory. It was a glimpse of what was to come following Jesus' resurrection and also what would come at his second coming when he comes in power to restore the world and make all things new. But, but without the resurrection, this is, this is unclear what just took place. Until his resurrection, no one would fully understand what had just happened. In fact, we see these three disciples here questioning like what, what they just saw and what Jesus is telling them. And so we see Jesus using this moment once again to talk of his death and his resurrection. They know they're struggling with that, especially Peter. And so this last chapter, Peter pulls Jesus aside and he, he rebukes Jesus because he was talking about his, his suffering and, 
And so here again, it's, it's not as strong of a rebuke, but you can still see in their questioning that they're struggling with all this death and suffering talk. And that's why they ask in verse 11 about the coming of Elijah. Now, what's, what's that about? They're, they're trying to, to get Jesus to say, like, this, this death and suffering thing shouldn't make sense because of what we know the prophets talk about with the coming of Elijah. They're referring to Malachi 4, one of the final prophets to speak before John the Baptist would step then onto the scene. So Malachi 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so here's what, here's what the disciples are asking. They're saying, Jesus, we just saw Elijah. We just saw him. He was there on the mountain with you. That must mean, because Malachi says that Elijah comes and then there's the awesome day of the Lord, right? The kingdom of God is is, is built. So that must mean the end is here and it's time for you to set up your kingdom. It's time for you to reign. We just saw Elijah. So they're asking him in a roundabout way, why do you keep talking about dying? That's not kingly. So what's Jesus say? He says, he's drawing them out what Malachi was talking about. He says, Elijah has come. They did everything to him that they wished, meaning that that he suffered and was killed. See, that Elijah that Malachi was talking about and that Jesus brings him into a fuller understanding was Malachi was talking about John the Baptist. John, who would be the voice in the wilderness, crying out that, that, listen, the Messiah is coming. He's here. And John the Baptist suffered. John the Baptist was beheaded in prison. And so he's saying to these guys, listen, Elijah has come. He's gone. And look, it was John and he suffered. Did you see his life? He suffered. And so like him, John is a foreshadowing of the suffering servant. Like him, he's saying the son of man must suffer and die as well. This is how the kingdom will be ushered in. And the disciples, they just can't get quite get past the suffering and dying part of Jesus' message. And so, and, so, and so we're going to see a few more times over the next coming, coming chapters, him coming back again and again to his suffering, his death, his resurrection. See, the coronation of Christ's kingship comes through suffering. Quoting Jeremy Treat one more time, he says in his book, From, from the Bruised Heel of Genesis 3.15 to the Reigning Lamb of Revelation 22.1, the Bible is a redemptive story of a crucified Messiah who will accomplish a royal victory through atoning suffering. And like him, our future glory comes through suffering. And that's my fifth and final point here this morning from the story of the transfiguration is that suffering must come before glory, but glory is coming. This really is the core takeaway from this story. It's, 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 it's not a takeaway that we like to hear, but it is one we must come to grips with. Again, to quote Jesus from Mark 8, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So church, Jesus calls us to come and die so that we might find life. That is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus, that we die to ourselves, that we put sin to death, that we stand firm upon the truth of the gospel in the face of mounting oppression, mounting persecution, so that we would look upon Jesus and say, even if the world slays me, you're enough. And it's in this story of the transfiguration of Jesus that we find encouragement for our hearts and souls in the midst of suffering for the sake of the gospel. How? Because Christ is the glorious King of kings. 
Jesus says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. John 16, in the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? I've overcome the world. The transfiguration is a glimpse of the glory that awaits those in Christ, that through trial, through pain, through suffering, he's enough. The theme of Jesus' life was suffering now, glory later. And what a glory it was in his resurrection and ascension. And so for those who are in Christ, there's coming a day when you will be resurrected to glory, when we will be changed. And so we walk and live until that day, just as Jesus did on this earth, suffering now, glory later. Don't ever try to switch those two around. Don't look for glory or comfort now, only to be faced with shame and suffering for eternity. Right now, glory may seem like light years away, but take heart, hold fast, he's overcome. Christ is enough. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will sustain you.